I'm reading from Romans 12, verse 1 to 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the reading of God's word this morning. It's not surprising that after extolling God's greatness at the end of Romans 11, Paul turns our attention to our only appropriate response, giving glory to God by worshiping him. And he does this by using striking language, the striking language of priesthood, of priests carrying out priestly duties, presenting sacrifices of worship. And in our passage this morning, Romans 12, 3 to 8, Paul quickly becomes more specific about how the renewed mind of the believer guides their service to God. With concrete instances of the transformed way of life to which we are called. And so we immediately see one of the ways we can carry out what God commands in verse 1 to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, by doing what God commands in verses 3 to 8, using our spiritual gifts for God's glory and for the good of God's people. Believers who live holy for God are committed to community. They do not live for and unto themselves any longer, but they become involved with the new people of God and minister to the needs of others with the gifts that are granted to them by God through his spirit. And so it begins in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now the four at the beginning of our text indicates that Paul is expanding on what he has just said. That's why we have read verses 1 and 2 as well this morning. And there Paul insisted that the mercies of God he had been writing about in chapters 9 to 11, all that theology and doctrine, were not only important, but decisive in our Christian action. That it is the mercies of God disclosed there which were actually calling us to live a life of living sacrifice. So to do this, verse 2, we must be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And where does that renewal of the mind begin? Well, it begins immediately here with having a proper view of ourselves. How should one think? 
Believers must recognize that God's gifts, everything we have and everything of ourselves, are acts of his generosity and not our own merit. Each of us is working with whatever grace is given to us according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this is, this is mind-blowing stuff, church. And Paul is already teaching what he means from the outset through example, saying, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Now, as an apostle, he was speaking with nothing less than the full authority of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the church. But instead of claiming the full authority of his apostleship, he makes it clear that he would have no authority at all except through the gift God has given him. Whatever leadership or capacity Paul had, it was because God had been gracious to him. In Paul's position and with his title, we might expect to find pride, but the mature believer does not consider their own standing or their own abilities as reflections on their own merits. Therefore, we find no justification to boast in ourselves. Paul recognizes that he is carrying out the assignment God has given him with whatever energy God has provided him, Colossians 1.29, and that even his motivation to do what God has assigned and empowered him to do has come from God, Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen to the attitude of the apostle in 2 Corinthians 3. We'll read verses 4 to 6a. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as, as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. This is, this is someone who had the supreme title in the church. They were the apostle. They spoke for Jesus. Paul wrote it down, and then we said, that's the Bible, which we're going to call the foundation of our faith and base every truth on whether or not it agrees with what Paul wrote here. This is an incredible title. We don't have anything that holds a candle to that in the church today. Only the scriptures. So Paul is the one who speaks with this authority. And this is what he's saying. We have no sufficiency in ourselves. Only God is sufficient and, and if we're sufficient in anything, if we have what it takes to do anything, it's because God has given us this sufficiency. By this point in Paul's career, he is, his faithfulness in fulfilling the apostolic calling was well known. He's famous now for being like the best Christian. Who, who you know, the other apostles, they're pretty good. And they're better preachers in person. But Paul, man, that guy writes like a phenom, well, let, let's take two-thirds of, of what we've gathered here, and like two-thirds of that will be what Paul writes, and the rest will be, you know, the other guys will add something in if they have some thoughts. He's famous, and yet he, he's keenly aware that his apostolic office is a gift of grace and cannot be attributed to his own accomplishments. In both of these things, Paul models the commands which follow he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The renewal of your mind, church, begins with recognizing that we are not as important as we think we are. The proper perspective comes from a correct assessment, first, of who God is, 
and in light of that, who we are. Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. When we know who God is, then we know that we cannot make a move in this world of any significance without the grace of God. See, if God does it, and it, it, that is established forever. No one can add to it. No one can take away from it. And yet the Bible tells us to do things that have eternal significance. It means that God is the one doing it through us. Knowing God helps us to know ourselves in this case. Knowing that we are utterly dependent on grace for any achievement that we enjoy in this world. How can we be anything but humble? This, these verses prohibit pride and arrogance. The, that boastful, exalted opinion of ourselves. Verse 3 also flies in the face of what is commonly taught today regarding self-esteem. Paul warns against a self-esteem that is too high, not against the dangers of low self-esteem. One of my mentors used to commonly say, God's not that concerned about your self-esteem. He's more concerned about your God-esteem. The common tendency is to view ourselves more highly than we ought, and then the, the lows of poor self-esteem are commonly symptoms of having our bubble burst. We have too high of self-esteem, and then we realize we're not really as good as we thought we were, and others do, definitely don't perceive us quite as highly as we perceive ourselves, and then we, we go into the, the dregs of, of low self-esteem, but both have the same root. We think too highly of ourselves, and when the reality of who we really are hits, we despair. And so both arrogance and insecurity have their root in pride, because both come from finding our significance in ourselves. Self-pride, which for obvious reasons is a less popular synonym of self-esteem, expresses itself in both thinking too highly of ourselves and feelings of worthlessness and insignificance. But our significance comes from God. And whatever God assigns to us is valuable. You, you may not be as significant as you would like to be, but you are significant. Because God has assigned your value. We have the tendency to rapidly vacillate between seeing ourselves through rose-colored glasses and despondency. But if we think with sober judgment... As we're commanded to hear, we will evaluate what we have done with our gifts, strengths, and weaknesses in relation to what we have received from God. So some of, some of my insecurities, some of my, my worries about whether I'm doing well enough or not, I have to take assessment first and see, is that really something that is my strength? Or is that somebody else's strength? Like... There's lots of things that I see friends of mine do really, really well, and I'm like, oh, I, I wish I was as good at doing that as my, my pastor buddy who's got, you know, his church is really administrated well, or he's got a really great online presence, or, there, you know, there's just various things, that, and we can look and assess ourselves according to other people, but are we taking a sober judgment of our own capabilities and our own strength? It may shock you in this modern age to see that Paul does not deal with the problem of pride 
by appealing to the concept of equality. What prevents pride from cropping up is a sober estimation of one's faith. And this sober estimation is based on the truth that God apportioned to each one a measure of faith. In Romans 11, Paul told his Gentile Christian audience not to look down on unbelieving Jews. They have nothing to boast over unbelieving Jews because their own salvation was a gracious act of God's mercy. Pride is dampened when one recognizes that the faith one has is a gift from God, not the result of one's own virtue. So they have nothing to look down on the unbelieving Jews because God's the one who grafted them in. They didn't graft themselves into the body of Christ. They didn't die for themselves. They didn't give themselves faith. They, they did nothing. This was the gracious gift of God. How can they look down their nose at unbelieving Jews who had rejected Christ? They had not received what the believing Gentiles had received from God. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And Philippians 1, 29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Are you aware, church, that it was granted to you for the sake of Christ that you would believe in him and then walk in obedience and suffering? Believers are surely tempted to yield to conceit since they exercise faith and unbelievers do not. But such arrogance is ruled out if it is truly grasped that faith is God's gift. The principle then works both in the case of believers in comparison with unbelievers as well then as believers in comparison with each other. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Different believers have different measures of faith. God also grants believers different manifestations of the Spirit, none of which will lead to boasting or judging one another unless those who are gifted also begin to believe that the gifts possessed are due to their own moral superiority. If we think that our position, if we think that our strength, if we think that our gifting is because we're better or we've made better choices or we're a more moral person, then pride will fester in us and ultimately bring death. But when we recognize that we have nothing at all that is of ourselves, not faith, not belief, not the doing, not the obedience, not the intellect, not the physicality, not the health, all of the things are gifts from God, and we are granted different things than our fellow believers around us. Sober estimate of ourselves and our Christian siblings, then, is necessary. Do we recognize that each one is working with what God has graciously given, the measure of faith that God has assigned? Do we get frustrated with each other? 
Do we start comparing ourselves to each other and saying, well, they don't serve as much as I do. They don't give as much as I do. We have no concept of how each one has different giftings, different abilities, and has been granted different things by God. How can we judge each other on these things? One is able to to meet with dozens of people a week. Another, it's hard for them to meet with two. One is able to talk boldly in a group of 30. Another can only talk with one person at a time. One person, like me, has an opportunity to talk to hundreds. Others of us maybe can gather three or four who want to listen to what we have to say. Each of us has been granted different things by God for different impact, and this is all according to his will. And if we don't recognize this church, well, we will have self-pride whenever we're doing better than someone. We'll be despondent whenever someone else is doing it better than we are. And we will be judges with evil minds attacking one another for the failings that are only an indicator of where they have not received the measure of faith that we have. What measure of faith we currently possess will impact our ability to serve God in particular ways. And so we're not to judge one another on the areas of our faith. We, we should judge sin in the church, and that's a totally other subject. But we cannot judge each other on the basis of where we have a measure of giftingness, giftedness in the spirit or a measure of faith. Romans 12, 4 to 5 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, That's key. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now Paul's larger emphasis in these chapters is the unity of the church. And the mental and moral transformation of the church does not take an individualistic approach, but it comes as an effect of the measure of gifts and faith that God has given to the whole church. And even the transformation of our minds and character are best seen in relationship to one another, how we treat one another. As we've been seeing in the study of 1 John on our discipleship nights, the chief evidence of life in the Spirit and of loving God is the way in which we love the people of God in action, not just in in thought and word, but in, in spirit and in deed. To view ourselves in a sober manner, in accordance with a true and objective estimate, the product of a renewed mind, will enable us to live in unity with other believers. As we do not wrongly judge them and we do not wrongly judge ourselves. Again, the shocking thing here is that the church is not called to unity by seeing our equality, but by seeing our diversity. Now, certainly Paul has earlier emphasized the equality of all people in that we all have nothing of value to offer God and have done nothing at all to deserve anything good from God. So there is a base equality of all people. None of us are good. No, not one. No one is righteous. No, not one. None of us has anything to offer God and and none of us deserves anything good from God. But now, in the Spirit, in Christ and by God's mercy... Each has been apportioned a measure of faith and good gifts which differ according to the grace given to us. Imagine 
in Jesus' parables of the talents in the cities. If the guy with five talents looks down at the guy with two and they go, come on, pull up your bootstraps, do better. You know, I've produced five talents out of my five talents. Why haven't you produced five out of your two? Each is, is given different things, measured out by God, apportioned by God, which, which means different amounts. Each has been apportioned a measure of faith. Each has been apportioned good gifts that differ. Any notion that the unity of the body would lead to a, a flat kind of equality is excluded. Some people want to think this way. Well, anybody could do that job. Anyone could be that gifting. Any, anyone could do this. It just... It's just all egalitarian. We all just have the same gifts and the same function. This is not so. This is the opposite of what the Bible teaches about the body. You know, if we were all a liver, you know, we'd get the toxins out, but man, we'd be in rough shape. Not very pretty. Our unity is not born of equality in strengths and gifts, but due to our incorporation into Christ. As we are united together because we are united with Christ. We have the solidarity of a body, the body of Christ, which though totally unified, is characterized by diversity. Usually, there's a uniqueness to the different functions of parts of the body. Sometimes we, you know, we have a lot of twos, two ears and two nostrils, two feet. There's a lot of ones. There's, there's lots of, of uniqueness, very different and this is where this analogy leads us to think. The, the church, much like the body, has different members with different functions. And even, even consider something that, that has essentially the same function like a muscle. Thigh muscles are very strong. Other muscles, like those of the eye, are very weak. And yet each serves an important function in their strength or in their weakness. Some parts get a lot of attention. Others have only been recently discovered by modern science. There may be parts of the human body that have not yet been named. We don't know. Certainly there's parts inside the cells that are being discovered even as we speak. But like the body, each member belongs to the other. They serve and promote the well-being of one another. You are strong in some area where I am weak and that is a good thing. And to criticize me for my weakness because you're strong there fails to understand the functioning of the body. We each have gifts and a measure of faith which have been assigned by God for the health of the body. Do you know there are people here in this congregation who have weak faith for your health for your good, God has planned this so that in having to deal with people of weak faith, you are strengthened even as you're trying to bring them along and, and help them. Later in, in Romans 14, Paul's going to really actually set differences on, on people who do things a certain way and people who, who do it another way. And he actually calls one of the groups the weak faith people. He's like, you know, the strong faith people eat meat and the weak faith people don't. And the strong faith people drink wine and the weak faith people don't. But he, he tells them not to condemn one another, not to attack one another, but that there is just, there's strong people and weak people. And we're coming back to, to Romans 12. God has done this. God has apportioned a measure of faith to each one. It is for our good. 
that some here are of weak faith? Should we be frustrated with them, angry with them? Should we rebuke them and tell them to get up to our level? No. They have a purpose, and it, maybe it's just your sanctification. The apostle then gives instructions about how this should be put into practice in relation to seven different, seven different gifts. And to begin with, this is not a full treatise on the charismatic gifts. This isn't Paul's point at all, so I can't take the time to do this. If you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about this. This is one of those things where I'd rather have a conversation than preach a message on the charismatic gifts because there's just so many questions and, and nuances. And so if it sounds like I'm taking a stance as I say things, just come and check with me if that bothers you. Seven different gifts. These are, are how we're supposed to live in relation to one another. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Now, the definition of each of these particular gifts is not Paul's purpose here, nor is it to give us instruction on the use of each gift. The main thrust is that we should use whichever gift we have. This is why it's if service, then serve. Teaching, then teach. Exhortation, well, you, you get the idea. You should exhort. Use the gift you have. Don't be so concerned that you don't have the gift that someone else has. And don't try to usurp their gift. I will try to define some of these so that we can understand more of what the first audience did here. Prophecy, as, as 1 Corinthians 14 especially reveals, was highly prized by Paul as a gift that brought health and edification to the church, if utilized properly. And so commands 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. We are also told, 1 Corinthians 14, 39, that everyone should earnestly desire to prophesy, although not all do. Prophecy could include predictions of the future, as we see in Acts eleven twenty eight and Acts 21, 10 to 12, but this was not its essence. More broadly, prophecy is proclaiming to the community any information which God had revealed for the church's upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Whatever truth was revealed by the prophetic gift did not come with the authority of the truth taught by the apostles, who wrote the commands of Christ but was to be scrutinized and tested by the community to see if there was a true message from God, 1 Corinthians 14, 29. To see the, the clear difference between the authoritative message of the apostles in comparison with prophecy at work in the church, which must be weighed and judged, we look to 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 40. Paul writes, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, 
earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Do you see these two categories? Paul's like, this is authoritative. Anyone who does not recognize this cannot be recognized, but eagerly desire to prophesy and test all things. Anyone who considered themselves a recipient of the gift of prophecy were always to conform their message to the objective standard of the faith once delivered by the apostles and were to be judged by their conformity to that standard of faith. In no way was prophecy allowed which would contradict the authoritative and objective revelation of the scriptures. If anyone thinks he is a prophet, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If he does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Those who prophesy then must do so only in proportion to our faith. For many throughout church history have been tempted to prophesy beyond the grace that had been given to them. Service, verse 7. It is a term, do you see why we need to have a conversation later if you have concerns about prophecy? Because that's my, that's my prophecy spiel. I, I'm, I'm available during the potluck. No one ever wants to sit with me. Come sit with me and we'll talk prophecy. Service, verse 7, is a term that is often carried in both the Greek and Jew, has often carried in both Greek and Jewish worlds nuances of subservience and lack of status. It's not the same term as slave, which is used as a, a title uh, for many of the apostles and writers of Scripture, but it is uh, the term that, where we get our term deacon from. And it, and it meant a, a servant, someone of low status. But our Lord Jesus described his own mission in terms of service. And he taught that to be great in the kingdom of God, Mark 9, 35, one must become servant of all. Service, then, became a, a standard way of describing the work that Christians do on behalf of others and to the glory of God. And so those gifted to serve should serve and not seek to minister in areas outside of their giftedness and thereby neglect the gift that they have been given. Teaching is usually distinguished from prophecy, which has the sense of a, a timely disclosure of God's message, by saying that teaching involves only passing on the truth of the gospel as it has been preserved and handed down from the apostles and through the church. But the fact that Paul considers teaching also as requiring a special gift of God's grace as a manifestation of the Spirit means that he did not think of teaching merely as conveying and passing on established tradition. The teacher is just as dependent on the Spirit as the prophet, requiring a gift from God for insight into the Scriptures and the significance he draws from them for his own context and congregation. Exhortation, verse 8, is the activity of urging Christians to live out the truth of the gospel. It is obedience to the command of Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is not the job just of the preacher. This is the job of the congregation to one another. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Some of you are very good exhorters. 
The exhorter is looking for the practical application of the gospel to a particular congregation, either as a whole or to individual members. And so the eyes of the exhorter has to be fixed firmly, not only on the gospel, but also on the concrete situation of those listening. How do we live this out? The one who contributes is gifted to give. And this could either be of their own substance or as someone who is well-equipped to distribute the gifts of others to care for various needs. Our church has a deacon who oversees the distribution of goods. This is a gift, but it could also be that the one who has things to give is, is more gifted in that sense. Paul encourages the one who gives to do so without ulterior motives, knowing that both their possession and their position are themselves gifts of God's grace. The one who leads should do so with zeal. 1 Peter 5, 2-3 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. To have a zeal for God in doing something is an effective defense against doing that very same thing for an idolatrous reason. It is when we have a zeal to do it for God that we don't need other motivating factors. And so he says, don't do this for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. A common command to church leaders is to fearfully discharge their duties with an eager joy. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So leaders are to lead eagerly and with joy. Finally, we have acts of mercy, which are to be done with cheerfulness. Someone with this gift could easily become overwhelmed with all the needs they encounter, or they may even become tired of dealing with needy people. The safeguard against this is to choose cheerfulness. Rejoicing in every opportunity God gives you to care for those in need. Rejoice that your gift is being used. Rejoice that you have a gift that is not of yourself, but is God working in you and through you. The other lists in the Bible of the graces, graces of God for the new covenant uh, differ in length and content. These other texts suggest that the early church recognized a small number of well-defined and, and widely occurring gifts uh, that, that kind of all the churches were seeing, along with an indefinite number of less defined gifts, some of which may not have been manifest in every congregation and some of which may have overlapped with others. The, the different texts don't have the same lists. These other texts, though, also agree with the main premise here. Ephesians 4, 7 says... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Again, there are gifts, but no one has the same ones. This is according to the measure God has given. 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to read verse 7 at the beginning of the list and then verse 11 at the end. The list is similar but different. It says, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
And then at verse 11, it says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Who decides how gifted you are? It's not you. It's not your merit. It's not your birth. It's not your morality. It is the Spirit who apportions to each one. And, and if other scriptures that I can just briefly bring in without quoting to you because this isn't in my notes, if other scriptures are any indicator, it's that God gifts the ones who are particularly untalented so that he will get more glory. That, that's the general sense of what the New Testament talks about. So it's not I'm more gifted because I'm more talented. It's I may be more gifted because I'm so devoid of talent that God would get more glory than if he gave you my gifts. The list here in Romans is actually missing some of the more common gifts that are listed elsewhere in Scripture. There's a, a lot of crossover between the other passages. This one doesn't have that same crossover. It's missing, for instance, the gift of tongues, which is in every other category. It's missing the gift of healing, miracles, apostleship, and evangelism. All really important giftings in other lists of the, uh, the gifts. And so it makes us sit up and notice that out of these seven gifts listed here, four refer directly to practical assistance to those who are in some way or another, especially in need of help and sympathy. Four. Of seven gifts, four are directly mercy ministry gifts. And the others, prophecy, teaching, and exhortation, are also directly linked to the practical service of the local church body and exist for its flourishing. So Paul's not just randomly listing gifts here. He is exhorting each member of the local church to use their own gift diligently and faithfully to strengthen the body's unity and help it to flourish. It's not talking about evangelism, which is reaching those outside the church. It's not talking about apostleship, which is planting the church. It's not talking about tongues, which are not for the edification of the church, but for personal edification. It's, it's talking about the things which build up the local body. Because each has received different grace for different ministries, we must not fail to recognize the value of each diverse gift. Otherwise, we will try to usurp roles not suited to our particular grace or faith. If we don't recognize there's value in every single gift, even if some get more attention than others, we will try to usurp other people's roles. I'll be the heart, and I'll be like, you know, people have been talking about the liver a lot lately because he got punched the other day, and we're always talking about the liver. I want to be a liver too. And if we had two livers and no heart, we'd be dead. When we value one gift over another or covet someone else's grace or assignment, we are tempted to mimic the gifts to which we have assigned greater importance or honor. And this will regularly happen in the church if we consider some giftings to be more spiritual or to reflect greater morality. Some have said that pastors have a greater gift. That has to be rejected outright, because then we should all try to be pastors. That there's a higher calling for some than others, that's ridiculous. It's God who has apportioned a measure to each one. You are as 
anointed. You are as called. You are as needed as any other role. Your role is necessary, needed for the flourishing of the church. Because of these discrepancies, where we value one gift over another, we should always be aware that our own self-assessment may be flawed. In recognizing our own giftedness, we should wait for others to recognize them or ask if people see these things as what God has assigned to us by his grace. For instance, we don't call ourselves to the ministry. Many young men today decide for themselves that they will be elders without their church recognizing their gift. And they go to seminary and they start applying at churches. And no wonder some statistics show as many as 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates leave the ministry within the first five years. Can you imagine five years of, of service after getting a, a university degree? Rather than to claim to have heard from God, we should take note of whether our spiritual leaders and other mature believers are telling us that God is speaking. We don't decide on our own whether we've heard from God that is disobedience to what's commanded in the scriptures. And it's foolish because we're poor at self-assessment. We might value a gift of hearing from God and so claim to hear from God, having confused him with our own internal dialogue. And this is why it's commanded that all prophecy be weighed by others. Because it's, it's hard to decide whether I had that thought or God gave me that thought. And so what, what I do, church, when I feel like God's put a thought in my head, is I look for the scriptures to corroborate it, make, make sure it's what the scriptures also teach, and then I just say it. And then some people, it, it may fall flat, but at least I haven't lied. Or someone may come and say, God really spoke to me through you. That was such a timely word for my life. We, we don't make the claim for ourselves. Like the Corinthian church, we can be drawn to the showy gifts which take front and center out of pride rather than out of our gifting. We try to emulate the giftings of those we perceive to be well-received or honored within the congregation. Maybe we don't want to hear, you are really great at serving, or wow, you are really great at gifts of mercy, or what an awesome giver you are. Like the body, we need to see each Christian as serving a necessary function for the benefit and health of us all. So when I see another member of my own body succeed, I can praise God for my success. It is my success when you do well. Not because I'm your pastor, because we're all members of one body. I don't take credit because I'm your pastor. It's because we are one body that when you're doing well, that's my body doing well. And when you're doing poorly, that's, that's my body doing poorly. When I see you succeed, I should praise God for my success. When I see another member blessed, I can thank God for it is my blessing. So also when one is grieved or suffers loss, that is my shared sorrow. The central point is that each believer has something unique to contribute to the proper functioning of Christ's body. And that despite our many inequalities, 
We can have unity when we each offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God by existing for each other's good. This combination of diversity within unity is what makes the church so rich and will make the church strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is is more precious to us than, than we can even imagine. Because we have your word, we can gather around Jesus. Because we have your word, we can come in obedience to you. Because we have your word, we can come and know you. And as we are incorporated into Christ, thank you, God, that we are also incorporated into a family of humans who have been called by God, who have been grafted in to the people of God through no merit, choice, belief of their own, but because you have done it. And Lord, be, being part of this community We have so many bad examples of what this community looks like that we desperately need you to reform us. We desperately need you to help us repent of where we have perceived this community to have a different role or a different function. And we desperately need you to bring healing where we have seen constant bad examples of of living as this community. We need you to help us to reconcile with one another where we have not been the body for each other and where we have tried to usurp each other's roles to have more honor and to consider ourselves more spiritual. Lord, may we rightly assess ourselves with sober judgment as you command us to here. May we see our desperate need not only for Christ, but for Christ's work through his church. For the church exists for your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would knit us together, bind us together as your church, as we begin to live in obedience to what your word has commanded us. Do this for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.